And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, technology, and memes. My name is Josh Chapteling, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, PhD candidate in cultural analysis and theory, artist, educator, and founder of Vital Thought, Emily Gilchrist, shows us how the 2008 recession led to universities devaluing the humanities and how Vital Thought is working to make the critical humanities accessible to everyone. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void podcast on your favorite podcast platform now. I'm Emily Gilchrist, founder of Vital Thought Critical Insight Courses. Uh, We are a new educational organization offering academic humanities courses wherein advanced content is unpacked and contextualized for all audiences. Our format currently are two virtual seminars taught by PhD trained instructors. And we really want to make advanced academic humanities accessible to people outside of academia or outside of the humanities, which is most people. (laughs) Uh, The humanities are really very insular at this stage um, due to a few factors, especially since 2008, uh, humanities programs were increasingly being cut and people just shifting towards taking STEM courses or uh, STEM majors, just focusing on more career-oriented paths and the humanities are really, really took a hit uh, within and also the changes within the structuring of academia facilitated this as well. So we now are at a stage where there's just a real lack of high quality humanities education happening and just a lack of connecting people who have that kind of training with those who are interested in what that training has to share and offer uh, so Vital Thought's hoping to to fill that gap a little bit and start to create a space for connecting well-trained scholars uh, with uh, general audiences. Yeah, I, as you can imagine, our project is extremely supportive of that. It's uh, you brought up 2008, and that's you know, I, I obviously that makes sense, but like I don't really think I made that distinct connection, but you're right. Like right at the financial crisis, it seemed to be that the humanities projects that didn't really have overhead, you know, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like university classes with humanities classes would cost that much. It cost a faculty salary, but it's really being human. Isn't really a cost expenditure. You know, it was just interesting that humanities programs probably wider than I personally know we're probably widely affected. I know I, I've said this before to you, Emily, but my master's at that time was getting cut. Uh, I graduated from my master's in 2010 and that program is gone. And it was, a, it was the former humanities program and it was called Comparative Arts and Culture. And it was so weird. What an odd shock of like seeing that program get cut when there was much more expensive programs across the university that obviously were more uh, resource intensive and really much more intensive to like tech and stuff. And they were just like, I think it was just bad timing too, because the the backlash of this is quite fascinating because it wasn't just like a growth of STEM, but it was also a growth of like these 
disenfranchisement of young people who really had no place to go find this. So that's like where your vital thought, I guess, is stepping in too. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and I, I point, I think just college culture also drastically changed at that point, right? Like there was this sense uh, before that time of, you know, going to college for the experience and to get a well-rounded education. And there was still some of these really traditional ideas that are really rooted in the humanities um, and like the, you know, the legacy of academia, of like philosophy and literature and and having a sense of cultural history and um, even a conflicted one, of course, but, um, you know, just the culture, being a part of, of culture and building and maintaining culture through um, through those kinds of discourses and through literacy in those kinds of discourses. And after the recession, um, you know, people, especially because the student debt system had started ballooning so, so much at that stage, people really needed to, students had to be more pragmatic about their educations. It really became more of, of job training programs. People had to think of them that way a lot of the time. And curriculums stopped. They kind of pushed humanities requirements out increasingly and, yeah, and cut programs entirely, which, you know, is usually justified as some kind of budget shortfall. But like you said, these programs have very little oversight. So it's really just a, a shift in the goals of the institutions from the top down. Because if you teach, you know, undergrads love humanities courses. Um, and they, they might not always want to take them beforehand, but once they take them, usually to fulfill a requirement, I've found, they really enjoy them and they really get a lot out of them. I had one student in a review write that the film course I taught was the only course she had taken in college. It was her fourth year where she had been asked what she thought about something. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So <laughs> that to me was a really big red flag that there's, <laughs> there's a really big problem here uh, that has gotten worse. Uh, since I think 2008 and maybe there were some things trending in that direction already, but that was, I think when things really drastically shifted um, in this direction and it's just intensified since then. Yeah. I think we see a lot more of this in retrospect now, like knowing where we are in 2021, looking back, we could see these direct corollaries. I think at the time, I don't think I was that quite tuned in, I guess, so to speak about like how, how they were affecting one another. Like I thought it was just like negligence and it was negligence on the university side, but it was also like, I wasn't clear on how those things attached, but you meant that the thing you said is pretty important, which is like, it was pragmatic. Ed was like forefronted, which is weird because like the philosophy of like a lot of faculty is like kids don't come to college to go get jobs. They go to get education. And so I guess there wasn't a lot of pushback from the faculty as humanities were getting trounced. And like it was just poor timing just in general. Like the fact that the recession disenfranchised so many young people and so many college people who really, like, I think you're 100% right. People want to go to college for that experience. It's kind of like the idea of what college is. It's the only time really in your life where you get asked any questions that you could answer in any way where, where it won't affect your career. But then there was like this, this darker backlash that was happening online at the exact same moment, which is just like social media was just poisoning simultaneously. And, and all of these counter subcultures were becoming very like uh, toxic. And one of the things that came from the STEM backlash was like people, you could almost tell now in retrospect, I don't think I knew at the time, but that pejorative phrase, learn to code, appeared at that time. And that was when people were being told rather than to learn like a humanities knowledge or get a more foundational contextual education, they were just being told to learn to code. And it was just a simple like 
three word task that they were given. And it was like, what a, what a loss. Like, did you see, like when you were teaching and like talking to people about humanities courses in general, did you see this loss? Did you see like people not, did, did they know that they were missing something bigger than that they were getting? Some of them did. I think a lot of them did not until we got through the class or at least partway through the class. So once they because the class, you know, was asking questions, was introducing complicated topics, introducing, you know, histories, texts, figures, just sh- showing them like there is a rich history of people thinking about things and critiquing things and analyzing things and discussing it and hashing out how to interpret our very complicated world. And I think they don't always really, especially because of the rise of internet culture and social media, they don't always realize that this history exists and existed in a way that's really different than the way internet and social media culture manifests it today. Um, so I think once they start doing, you know, engaging with that material, they start, um, you know, writing response papers that I'm engaging with and giving them feedback on and asking them more questions to kind of push their thinking further, they realize and I think find really fulfilling that process and realize that it's been very absent in like their lab work or their other their other courses that are um, just very different in what kind of knowledges they're cultivating. And then I think they they carry that further. But I think when you when they aren't introduced to it at all, they don't really know that they're missing it unless they you know, encounter something that shows them a little preview. So is, is final thought, that's that preview, right? Like that's going to be like kind of like a, like a sample board of like the humanities uh, canon almost, but it also takes this edgy modern day 2021 approach to some of the content. So what are some of the things that are like being covered? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we're hoping Vital Thought can offer, um, as well as like enriching people who are just in different disciplines and want a little more insight into something specific. Uh, But yeah, to kind of be that introduction and to be a short form course so that you know, people don't have to necessarily commit like six to 12 weeks to, to learn something. They just need to commit one week. So we have all kinds of courses, a range of humanities topics and social and social science topics as well. So we kind of cut across philosophy, science and technology studies, cultural anthropology, a lot of performance studies, gender studies, a really great range of, of things that people I think are generally familiar with, right? Like they know a lot of from, you know, internet debates generally, or um, hot button issues in politics now that are really sensationalized, Um, you know, like critical race theory, right? There's things that become flashpoints in um, our very problematic public discourse, but people often don't really know what they are, or what their history is, or how to really engage with them, or where to even go to find reliable information to uh, explain what those things are. So, um, so we're offering that for people so that they can engage with these debates in a more informed way. Yeah, I think that's the big lack here is informed. I think, I mean, you just brought up like ugh, the, mo- the most frustrating by far thing that's going on right now is the, the debate about critical race theory and its usage in classrooms, which like is kind of like amazing that this is happening because I've never met any student that's taken a course in critical race theory, like in in tertiary uh, in a primary secondary ed and, and some in tertiary ed and it's kind of fascinating that it's become a slogan rather than something that is useful and i think this also goes back to that 2008 thing which is like imagine what happens when you have a 10-year gap of no humanities 
you have this non-contextualized, uh, weaponized, polarized content that comes directly from right-wing media. And it's fairly chambered. Like if you talk to anybody who's not consuming right-wing media, they're not, they don't even, I've asked several people and they don't, they're just like, what, what's, what's critical race theory? I'm just like, oh, oh, let me, let me explain, let me not even refer to it in that way. So we could talk about it more like comprehensively than actually using the, the keywords that they're using. Cause critical race theory does come from like the legal standpoint, blending with humanities rather than what people think it is, which is like indoctrination, which first off, education is education. Like it's not, people like to use the term indoctrination, but that's only because they like to create fear out of education. Like they'd, they'd rather make education like something that's bad rather than something that's like, you just, it's not indoctrination, it's learning. Like <laughs> that's kind of what it is. And without the context of why we learn, I think there's a huge gap in that that knowledge just to begin with. So it's like when I think it is better that we're using the term humanities and humanism and like even the social sciences and philosophy rather than using the, the terms that are being weaponized. Yes. And um, I think that's really true about de things are so decontextualized. And again, this is largely a result of Internet culture and social media mm -hmm. culture where um, things just spread and are completely taken out of context, especially out of any sort of social and community context. So that is another thing Vital Thought wants to create, which is why we have these seminar style courses. They're, um, they're live streamed, they're interactive. You can ask your instructor questions while they're lecturing, while they're hosting uh, discussions. You can talk to your peers in the moment. So you have a sense that these ideas and these discourses are alive. They're part of lived experience. They're part of the living culture mm -hmm. and they are not, they're not ideology. They're, they're alternatives. They're other, and there are other ways of thinking. There are other perspectives to consider often very rigorously developed perspectives that are worth considering if yeah. you would like to better understand your own perspectives. I guess that's also what is always surprising to me when people, like you said, view education as indoctrination is that oftentimes learning other ideas and other perspectives actually helps you clarify your own voice and your own perspective um, rather than like obscuring it or covering it over or like converting you to some different perspective. Um, it helps you fine tune it uh, and really reflect on your own ideas and assumptions and values, uh, which oftentimes you don't, many, you know, many people don't really do and don't have the opportunity to do that. Like you said, because that doesn't happen that much in a work context, it often happens in an educational context. And in addition to that, it's something I found fascinating about what you're mentioning about like social media and, and in terms of that all reductionism is it's really hard to think of a time. There used to be a time, I guess this is a part, partly a story. I remember there was a, a moment, a big shift when people stopped needing to catch up with each other because of Facebook, like they would see each other and the usual, you see a, an acquaintance and you're just like, Oh, how you been? And you kind of give like a, very brief summary that you've probably rehearsed in your head several times of like what you've been up to since last time you've seen them. And then Facebook kind of dissolved that you introduce somebody and you're just like, Oh, and you knew how, what they've been up to because you check their social media and you're just like, Oh, cool. Good for you. But then that, that vacuum of space is supposed to be like what we were doing before all of this, which is like having a nice conversation about something, just something at all. And I think, Social media has given us, instead of giving us the opportunity to have more conversation in physical space, has actually given us talking points. And now all it is is like physical space debates because you're just using the reductionist content rather than the 
the more comprehensive stuff. So it is, this is all tied together. When Josh and I do a lot of work of like trying to tie all these things together through a decade of like, how did this all happen? And, and it is like good to see, like, I'm glad to hear Vital Thought like doing this because it's good to see. It's almost, it's not, Vital Thought isn't reactionary because it's not reacting to the moment. It's becoming part of a moment that's necessary of a, is in, in a vacuum, like a, a very large space that has disappeared or, or appeared over the course of time. You and I share a story of our doctorate program, another cultural studies, uh, cultural analysis theory program being dissolved while we were in it. Like we, we, we came in as the doors were like, as the building was crumbling and they're just like, they didn't ask us to go to another building either. They were just like, this is, <laughs> things just crumble. <laughs> You're just like, uh, and so, and I personally, I mean, I chose to stay in my degree. You've chosen to stay in the degree and I've never done anything more rewarding than learning all of the different aspects of humanism, humanities, cultural theory and everything. And it, it it's a shame that like we have to acknowledge its loss to kind of like talk about what it could be rather than like kind of work from it. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it, like we were saying before that people don't really know its value because they're so unfamiliar with it at this stage. It's become such a rarity that uh, I think people don't totally realize how enriching it really is um, and how much it can give a sense of meaning and sense of community and a sense of understanding of the very complicated and really chaotic world that we are all in right now. And I, and that there's a difference between learning and consuming information. And that distinction is has also kind of been obscured, I think. And we're hoping that the programming we develop with Vital Thought can help to change that. We're also, our courses are virtual for now, but we're developing programming for in-person courses and screenings and talks that will be starting in Brooklyn in the fall so that we can have some now that it's becoming safe to do so, some face-to-face meetings where people can really do this in person, where it is obviously the most organic and it really starts to build communities around, around asking questions and around how we carry forward these traditions of thinking and analysis and how we contend with this very complicated world that we're all dealing with, sociopolitically complicated, ethically complicated, technologically wildly complicated and increasingly oppressive. <laughs> so we're really excited about that. I recently read, I'm about a decade younger, I think, than Jamie. And so I recently graduated with my master's in media studies in December 2019. And I took a course that was a consortium between uh, CUNY Queens College, which is where I was studying to get my master's in media studies, uh, Cornell Tech, Columbia, NYU, and Pratt. And it was about tech media and democracy. And there were a bunch of students uh, that had degrees ranging from STEM to graphic design. And then there were us, the weird media studies, humanities students. Like we were considered very, very weird um, to be there, but we were kind of brought in to bring like this critical approach to things. And interestingly enough, when we were in the classroom the day that the Cambridge Analytica story broke. And at that time, a student, a computer science student raised their hand and one of the instructors of the course was David Carroll, the professor from the new school that broke or that sued in the UK. 
And uh, the student said, I don't understand why I have anything to worry about. I don't have anything to hide. Who cares if they use my data? And to me that, and to me that was like the, oh my God moment. This is why we need uh, the humanities. (laughs) Like there's such a gap in uh, what is not just fun, exploratory, critical, and necessary. And the zeitgeist of of students, and this is not to uh, insult anyone in a STEM program, but to ask you, how do you engender or promote the humanities when we're at a moment when so many people simply ask, why would I do something unless I can get a degree or, or a certificate or what value will this bring me in return? When it seems systematically there's been this complete pushdown of the humanities value in general, like it, it's viewed as uh, almost useless in, in to most mainstream folk. Yes, I, I've had a similar experience teaching a writing course where the, the theme was uh, technocriticism in general. And I I did a lesson uh, or I, I led a discussion about the Cambridge Analytica issue, about Facebook, and they seemed, they were young, they were freshmen as a freshman writing course. So, you know, I expected them to not really totally understand the issue, but I really broke it down blatantly. Like this is threatening democracy. This is undermining democracy. And a student just outright asked me, like, why is that a big deal? <laughs> <laughs> I like did I like had to take a minute. I didn't know how to, you know, I had to take a breath. <laughs> um, why why is it a big deal to undermine democracy? Right. Where do you even start? Right. I, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I, I think part of it, and this is actually an idea that I pull from a critical theory essay that I, I really love, um, or that I, I always think back to it when I notice it, that it's from the Walter Benjamin essay, the work of art in the age of production. Um, and he talks about capitalism as creating or people not really noticing that capitalism is very fascistic and or rather totalitarian, I guess, in its structuring because it facilitates free speech and free expression on such a large scale. And that to me just was all I could think of when these students, when the student said this, and there was clearly this, this divide because they're, you know, Gen Z, they grew up with the internet where everyone's expressing themselves. Everything's about say whatever you want, you know, be who you are, blah, 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 that they're not realizing that democracy is not just about your identity or your preferences or what you like. It's uh, about production and environment and economy and housing rights and right to food, right to clean environment, right to water, you know, these things that are so structural and they just have a complete disconnect between what's really materially, structurally happening in our world, in our society today versus sort of their personal experience of what they're told freedom is. And that disconnect, I think, is really worsened by technology. Um, it's exacerbated really severely by our techno infrastructure and our technology just kind of dominating culture and dominating discourse at this time because it it does kind of erase the reality of material infrastructure, right? You don't pay attention to where, you know, how much energy you're iPhones and laptops consume or where all the minerals inside them are mined and how unsustainable those sources are and, uh, you know, how exploitative the labor practices are and that 
you know, those things are connected um, and how it's connected to, you know, computing power is connected to global finance. Uh, you know, how these things really are <laughs> very deeply married. And just because on the level of consumption, we are sold that, you know, into the idea that these things are for our personal enrichment and for fun and to connect it. We just, <laughs> the marketing pitches for all of these products have just become ideology, I think, because they so quickly took over right in the last like 10 years. It just became so definitive. Yeah. I mean, when I, whenever I hear of an online course, unfortunately, the very first thing I think of is like a Tim Ferriss 10x return maximize your blah blah venture capital thing and it's just so refreshing to see wait a second we can use these platforms to create material change even at distance and lower the gateways to entry so that people that are systemically locked out or maybe too far removed so that they feel locked out can now begin to access these courses to uh, begin to deepen their understanding of culture and the humanities. Absolutely. And and I think there's been a huge shift because of the pandemic. Obviously, people have completely trans transformed into uh, accepting virtual learning. It just became obviously necessary for so many people. So, and people started doing it in many different ways. Uh, you know, respectable institutions did it. Everyone was doing it. So people are more comfortable with it. And yes, that idea of these kind of uh, exploitative online courses that are kind of mostly marketing and, and not really always that valuable in terms of real content, that's really not, I think, dominating any people's idea about online learning anymore. And I think at the same time, the, the pandemic just was such a traumatic crisis, still is. And it has led to people asking questions and um, just wanting to grapple with the many ways that our institutions have failed us uh, and are or were kind of crumbling. And they're, they want to, I think, contend with these things. But at the same time, the media has been an absolute nightmare this year. Just the sensationalism, and the heartbreak, it's, it's just been so much. So I think people want something that's less sort of passive in terms of just consuming news stories. Um, but they also, they do want to engage with what is a really, a really crazy time in history and in the world. And I think Vital Thought will create a space for doing that. We talk about this quite often. This is probably one of the reasons why this project even exists is we're, we're at somewhat of a precipice and this is not an, this isn't controversial. It's controversial, I think, if you weaponize it, but I don't think it's controversial at all is that we're at a point where people are starting to recognize that the pandemic unlocked a lot of the knowledge that I think people aren't really getting what they're understanding at the result of this. So the pandemic revealed a lot about labor. It revealed a lot about what it means to work somewhere and what it means to have uh, employee rights. And the, what I'm seeing is this fascinating pushback against labor and thought in this and, and employee rights of constant saying, well, I don't want to return to the office if I'm more productive at home. I now know what it's like to have a good boss versus a bad boss, what it's like to have a leader versus a non-leader and so on and so forth. But I think a lot of people are coming to this knowledge in the gap of not knowing what it means to have labor rights or the value of their own labor in the face of employment, compensation, 
and power, really. I mean, if we, if we want to get Marxist about it, is like just knowing that like we to to lay bare what it means to work in a in a world of being fully connected to everything. It needed a pandemic to kind of reveal that. And now it's like, oh, but now there's not a good vocabulary to fight back or to gain that power. So there's a lot of people saying things like I'm not going to return to work, which is fine. I, you know, I think that's great. I think people realize their their strength, their value to unemployment. And they're just like, I'm not coming back. That's great. But I don't I want to see something that's also long term, like, okay, so what happens when you aren't able to do something or you can't find a space that's going to be respectful for you? Because we, unless we're collectively taking action, it's going to be very hard to change those structures. And the only way to really change those structures is knowledge, is to learn the, the value of, of what that is. And value means actually knowing how these things happen. What's the context? What's the history? How did we get here in the first place? So it's, it's, it is fascinating. I think that's really funny what you say. It's like, yeah, we're using the pandemic as a, as a kind of like a knowledge of like laying bare, making clear these structural issues that have always been there, but now you get to see it. But I also think we, it kind of gave us a test run that of what happens after, because not only are it's, is capitalism fascistic in its structure, but we're also at the point where we're only, God, I, I hate to say it's so like less than two decades out from extreme climate catastrophe. Uh, so <laughs> I know you've done a lot of work with uh, a lot of your work is climate change based. Uh, can, do you want to speak to? Yes. My, my dissertation work really I, looks at ideology. My background is actually in art and philosophy and psychology. So those are kind of the perspectives I've brought into, although my work now still pretty rooted in psycho, uh, psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic theory and a range of philosophical approaches, as well as history and anthropology. So very much an interdisciplinary scholar. But I look at the ideology that has sort of brought us to this climate crisis point, and and it kind of dominates how we're dealing with it kind of as a society. Um, I identify it as techno-industrial ideology, uh, because I think that of course, really structures the way our world is formed, the way we are sort of necessitated to understand our world. Um, and it's also framing sort of the approach to solutions to dealing with climate change, uh, sometimes detrimentally, uh, because, of course, our techno-industrial infrastructure is the cause of climate change. So there's this paradox there, and that's that's mostly where I make my scholarly interjection. So I'm very interested in the ways tech is exacerbating the crisis rather than uh, mitigating it. And the way, again, partly because of the way tech really obscures its own existence in a way, like even the, the language of like the cloud and paperless, you know, it, it pretends that it just exists in like the ether. Uh, and so people don't really understand that you know, we're, we're creating an, a more energy intensive societies that don't really need to be <laughs> that. Um, and that it's primarily serving the accumulation of capital in the hands of very few people who have already, uh, you know, transferred more wealth upwards than in like the history of human civilization. So um, <laughs> the, the connections here, I think, are, are really important to engage with critically. And again, because STEM education has really dominated and it's what's really given people 
um, you know, employability in many cases. Uh, and it's, of course, really dominant within just social media discourse, just cultural discourse, again, because that's where our most recent economic booms have been in the fields of tech. People don't approach it critically because, of course, it's just whenever you have an industry that gives people <laughs> any amount of wealth or any amount of success or any amount of economic freedom and power, it of course, that's seen as something good. But when you look at how many industries, you know, when we look at it through a lens of the climate crisis, um, I also use a lens of post-colonial theory. So we also end labor. So if we look at, um, you know, the global South, if we look at global racism and legacies of imperialism, and we also look at labor exploitation, that you realize that these systems are deeply problematic and are are not really moving in a good direction, especially when, like you said, we really only have a couple decades to to try to mitigate climate change in a significant way before we start hitting various tipping points, various ecological tipping points, which are going to accelerate various crises, uh, including pandemics. That's a very likely outcome of, of various ecological collapse situations, which I'm sure will happen kind of in, in chunks and in different areas, but uh, there will be like cascading domino effects when different uh, tipping points ecologically are, are hit. And there's just really a lack of urgency, of course, and I think a lack of engagement with how to address this problem. Because, and again, this is something I address in my work, these, these problems typically are seen as engineering problems, right? Like we need to create sustainable energy. We need to create um, you know, infrastructure. We need to create you know, new weight, new plastics that are made from whatever. We need to create more you know, different, different technological solutions. And uh, those are important and obviously have a very important role to play in dealing with this. But I think we also, at the same time, need to think about how we should be shaping our societies differently on a local and global scale. Like we need to really think about what does a sustainable world look like? Yeah. You used the term create several times in that. And it was something that I think about a lot when it comes to this. And I think it it really shocked me when I to ver to give a very simplistic view of this or like think of this in a very small term. I always thought about the plastic straws issue. Like so there is the it just like this is just based climate change is the plastic straws are incredibly damaging in general. They they don't dissolve and they get everywhere and they get in spaces that are consumed by animals and so forth. And then it was not a solve to just eliminate straws, but straws are necessary to some people for some uses, but it was to create metal straws, to create other objects. So it wasn't eliminating plastic straws, but rather creating several variations of straw. And that was something that I found fascinating in terms of like even tech, when you want to like say, if we create something, I remember we were taking, there were several eco-crit courses, which takes a pessimistic view, almost basically a cosmic pessimism of climate change, where I think humanities is more of an optimism and a willingness to act collaboratively. And in that pessimism, there was very much this, um, this thought about even climate change scientists, because they, they're siloed in science in some spaces, believed that when the time came, the tech would be available to make this fix. And I think that was a very interesting techno-utopianism that was built into so much that we don't even see it to the point where people like scientists are literally saying, It'll be there when we need it. But when we need it is after what Rob Nixon would call slow violence against the poor. Because by the time that takes place, it's already after 
climate change has affected those who have the least ability to adapt to it. And I think that's where humanism will, will enlightens us is that it's about what you said, like shaping and sustainability, which is not just saving the the earth in the end, but saving the people that live on the earth. Yes, yes. And exactly. Also, it's whatever it's spoken about, like it's some future crisis. It, it just erases the reality today of, you know, there's there's tons of climate refugees, of people whose deaths are attributed to climate change, primarily through air pollution, uh, you know, heat, excessive heat or natural disasters that are worsened due to climate change. Uh, and that that's all just sort of disregarded. Um, and again, it's just seen as this future crisis, which it, it will get worse in the future, but it's already here. It's already happening. Um, and like you said, it's just not happening as frequently to the people who are, you know, benefiting from the perpetuation of climate change or not necessarily benefiting, but are uh, living in worlds fully constructed with the spoils of climate change producing infrastructure. Uh, so namely the first world primarily. There's a real, there's a real disconnect here about again, the, the material and environmental realities that we are living in globally and the lived everyday world of employment and communication and having a life and what, uh, what that looks like and how it feels and what's it made up, what it's made up of. And I think that disconnect is, again, something that is intensified by technology. And it's kind of part of how tech is sort of self-perpetuating by, I guess, reification is really what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there, you brought up something earlier about like the, the con concepts of tech. And I, one of the great things I learned in our degree was critical analysis theory to engage with media archaeology outside of object studies and more in terms of humanism. And one of the things was what you said, which is that we don't often think of our phones as minerals, as tech, as gold, as silica, as lithium. And all of these things are mined. They are humans. Lithium farms exist all over the earth as we're trying to mine the earth to make it happen. The gold in our phone is several hundred million years old, and it doesn't just appear in our phone. There are likely lots of exploited labor that bring us the gold that stores our memories on these things. But it goes a step further because we don't need to upgrade our cell phone every year, but structures, Apple, Samsung, and whoever have to create a planned obsolescence by bricking old phones. So you're kind of forced to move forward, which just considerably increases the amount of stuff necessary and increases the, the labor. And it's couched under we create jobs, but it's also not, it's disacknowledging the people that are, I mean, we they're the invisible folk that are literally des designing objects for our consumption that do the same thing on a daily basis for decades at a time to bring us our own things. And, and, and I think like part of humanities is kind of just remembering that they exist, like people who are less fortunate or less uh, privileged in that space. So I think that's where I think people have to understand they're not being, and this is like that pushback against like, the most recent manipulation of like what education is an indoctrination isn't that we're trying as educators to change people so they go out to lithium fields and like give somebody a sandwich it's to acknowledge that this labor exists and that we are collectively the same human being and that in some way or another we're also that type of exploited labor just on a different scale of that and i think 
I want to ask you maybe one one last question. What do you think happens when we become knowledgeable of all this? Like, what is is that a force for good? Like that we become aware of all of these structural shifts? Is that what's the what's that endpoint for that? Or is there no endpoint? Is it a collective action? I think there's a there are a few outcomes. One I think is just creating. Uh, again, the world word create. I think we're, there's just a lack of vision. I think happening right now. Again, when I mentioned envisioning a sustainable world. To really do that, we need to confront how deeply unsustainable our current world is. And like you said, so, you know, lithium batteries uh, are hugely unsustainable. I mean, electric cars are also unsustainable because of the way we create lithium batteries. I mean, they're better in many ways, of course, because oil's, you know, horrible, but they're still not sustainable in the strict sense of the term. If you mean, you know, not creating pollution and waste and not exploiting labor, then it's not. Uh, And right now, to my knowledge, there's there's really no tech that operates in a truly sustainable fashion. I'm not sure if it's actually possible in our current world to do that without a massive amount of uh, investment in something very different. And I don't think we can really create a sustainable world until we grapple with that and start thinking about that and confronting it. And I think even on... uh, individual public education, public discourse uh, level, people having more understanding of, uh, you know, post-colonial theory of of difference of um, the tech of science and technology studies, like the history of technology, where it comes from. Um, There's more space there for people to critically engage with the world around us and also critically engage with politics, critically engage with their own um, labor position, their own employment. and when these crises hit, which they will, I think they will be uh, less susceptible to predatory manipulation by interest groups, which will, of course, happen as we saw in the coronavirus pandemic. It's about creating the possibility for something else, as well as uh, sort of preventing possible pitfalls in the future. This is that what you just said is so fascinating. It really is like one of those like eye-opening moments because I think you answered it pretty well, which is without the education necessary to get contextual value, the possibility doesn't exist. So what is offered is possibility. And that alone, I think, is like a superpower. It's like, it just gave me like chills to think about. Like, I think we're skewing educationally since 2008 towards that space of no possibilities, like the option. And you're right. You're absolutely right that the pandemic was one of the was a, a kink in that system because it was unexpected by the progression of these capitalistic structures that were designed so almost specifically to make us not think about possibility. And then the pandemic happened and people were just like, whoa, there's choices. <laughs> and so there's the the education that comes from a humanities degree. And that student who said to you that that line, that's just such a beautiful line, which is like, I, I just never really been asked this. Like that alone is so empowering and so impactful to somebody's future. That causes like that ripple effect, that butterfly effect almost that like six, seven years out, that story started that day in your class. Yes. Yeah. I, I actually find myself wondering if there's so many of the issues that really were brought to light during the pandemic or during the past year were touched upon and dealt with in my film, my critical film course. And I, I'm like, wanna, it's, it's tough being a teacher when you, you can't reach out again to your former students and find out, you know, how, because you, learning is a process, right? It takes time. You, as you grow and develop, 
you remember things and they take on new meaning and you encounter them in different contexts. And I find myself really curious about how they related to a lot of these things and if in what ways they might have brought content from the course into their interpretations. Uh, and that's actually something I want to kind of deal with with Vital Thought is by having a continuous community so that uh, people can like get back in touch and find out, you know, where people are at to maintain those connections that when you teach in institution settings are, are usually lost um, as soon as courses are over or as soon as someone graduates. I don't think I could follow that up with anything better than that. So thank you so much, Emily, for being here. This was excellent. And where can we find you, Emily? And where can we find more about Vital Thought? Yeah. Yes, our website is vitalthought.org, where you can see our courses that are open for enrollment for July and join our mailing list where you can find out about uh, upcoming events and workshops coming up this year. And our Instagram is at vitalthoughtcourses, where most of our our courses are advertised and our, our events are posted. Thanks again to Emily for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. Vital Thought launches its first slate of course offerings next week on July 5th. You can register for a wide range of courses, including Memes in Digital Culture featuring Jamie himself. For more information, you can visit vitalthought.org. And for more information about Digital Void, head on over to digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back soon.